podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Monday. It is the 18th of September. Hope you're all well. Hope you all had a nice weekend. We had a very, very interesting weekend in the Premier League, didn't we? Uh, It all began on Saturday morning with Wolves against Liverpool. Liverpool running out 3-1 winners, but not before getting a big scare in the first half. Wang had put Wolves won up on seven minutes and Wolves were dominant and were carving Liverpool open almost at will. Uh, Cunha should have made it two. They had a couple of other half chances where really and truly they could have forced home their advantage and it could have been 3-0 at halftime. 
before Liverpool properly woke up. But they came out second half, thought made some changes. I've talked about them more in depth in the Daily Red, if you want to go and listen to that. Uh, so Gakpo scores on 55, Robertson on 85, and then a Hugo Bueno on goal. It's a Harvey Elliott shot that's going wide. It takes a deflection. It goes in off the post on 91. The 3-1 flattered Liverpool. They did deserve the win. But 3-1 probably wasn't a fair reflection. 3-2 probably would have been a fair reflection or 2-1, obviously. But look, Liverpool will take the points. Always difficult going away. Early kickoff on a Saturday, especially after an international break when you've got a number of South American players that have had to fly, you know, to one side of the world and then back. Um Notably, Alexis McAllister, who started for Liverpool, had, went, went off at half-time and was taken off at half-time. He played for the Argentines, believe in Bolivia, at exceptional altitude on Wednesday night, Thursday morning, our time. So, you know, very little turnaround for him. I don't think Klopp said in his press conference on Friday morning that he hadn't even seen the players yet who'd been to South America. So, tell you how late they got back and how quick of a turnaround it was. But Liverpool will be thrilled with those three points and with their uh, impressive start to the Premier League campaign. 13 points from a potential 15, four wins and a draw. That draw, obviously, opening day away to Chelsea. The team wasn't quite settled. The, that draw looks worse now than it did at the time, obviously, because Chelsea have been so poor. But Liverpool will be very, very happy. Um Wolves can count themselves very unfortunate to only have three points. They deserved potentially something from this game. They definitely deserve something from their trip to Old Trafford on the opening day. If they keep playing the way they did against United and in the first half uh, on Saturday, I don't think they're going to be one of those teams that ends up going down. I think they've got enough about them to stay in the division. Defensively, Dawson's lack of pace and mobility is an issue. But the left side of the defence is strong. The midfield looks really strong. Lamina and Joe Gomes played really, really well together as a pair. They break up play really well. They've got Bubakar Traore to rotate with them. Obviously, they've signed Tommy Doyle from City as well. I'm hopeful he'll get more and more games as the season progresses. I think he's going to be a very good player. Cunha and Neto, though, are who they need to continue to perform. Those two were brilliant in the first half on Saturday. And if they can play like that week on week, then Wolves don't have too many problems. They need to find goals. And I think Sasa Kalazic can be the provider of those goals. But Gary O'Neill's got to get him in the team. He's got to get him in the team. And then from there... Especially if you've got that Nuri Neto left side and Cunha playing off the striker, plus that double pivot, you sort that right wing spot out. And maybe it is playing Matt Doherty, who came on right wing uh, at the weekend. Maybe it could be him because he's a good crosser and he'll get you some goals. And he's obviously played a lot of his football as wing back. So having him play as a sort of almost an added defensive winger, but he can also add something going forward. Maybe that helps. Obviously, Wang can play there as well, though he's not naturally a, a winger. Um, 
but yeah, Wolves, I think, can be heartened by their performance, even if the result didn't go their way. Uh, into the 3 p.m. kickoffs we go then. And I suppose we'll start with the the most boring of the five. It is Fulham 1, Luton Town 0. If you look up Dower in the dictionary, it's probably just going to be a description of this game. Uh, Carlos Vinicius with the only goal of the game coming off the bench to give Fulham a massive three points. Thought Joe Polino was very, very good. And given the disappointment of not getting his move, to have him then sign a new deal, even if it means he's going next summer on a on a lower release clause, but to have him sign a new deal and then play like that does show the character of the player and the fact that they don't need to worry about his commitment levels. He is going to be there for them this season at seven points now from their first five. So with Polina now guaranteed to be there for the year, I definitely think they're going to be a lot better than we expected or I expected when I predicted that they finished 17th. I think they'll be a decent bit higher than that. I don't think Fulham are going to have too many worries uh, moving forward. Luton, though, it, it's it's probably panic time. I mean, no wins from no wins, no draws, no points from four games. And it doesn't really get a whole lot easier because even though your next three games are all potentially winnable, they're also against teams who are now desperate for wins themselves. Wolves, Everton and Burnley, all of whom need points. So, look, if they can pick up five points from those three games, then that wouldn't be a bad return but they've got to win at least one of them. They've got to win at least one of them. They they just don't look like a Premier League team at the moment. Um, they play some decent football at times. Obviously, their style of play is pretty well defined. They're quite direct. They play at a decent tempo. They're big and they're physical. But they need to be taking advantage of set pieces because that's probably their best route to creating chances. And they're just not doing that at the moment. And they're not generating enough set pieces either. Uh, I get at the weekend, uh, only two corners won. Like they've got to be getting the ball into the opposition final third just a little bit more. You can't be having 22% of the ball against Fulham. Fulham don't want the ball. So you can't be having 22% of the ball there because all Fulham did was once they got their goal, they just managed the game. It was very, very straightforward for them. Now, Luton's only real chance in the game came to Carlton Morris. He kind of scuffed his shot. But other than that, they didn't really threaten at all. Uh, Moving into the 3 p.m.s then, and one of these is... (laughs) None of these are actually straightforward, but we'll start with West Ham against Manchester City. West Ham go one up through James Ward-Prowse on 36 minutes. A really nice ball from Vladimir Sufal and credit to Ward-Prowse, timed the run into the box well and met it with a low diving header. But City absolutely bossed them. And when Jeremy Doku equalised just after half-time, it was no surprise. Bernardo Silva made it 2-1 on 76 and then Erling Haaland wrapped it up on 86 and City just look unstoppable at the moment. They just look inevitable at the moment. It's very hard to see who stops them, who takes points from them. They just have multiple different levels that they can go up each and every game. 
And we've seen this transformation from City over the last couple of seasons to a very physical team. And when you're looking at a team that is Kyle Walker, Manuel Akanji, um, Ruben Diaz and Josco Guardiol as a back four, all of whom are six foot and over, plus Rodri in front of them, like that's great physicality to have, great power to have in your defensive areas. And then you get the pace and the, the dynamism of Doku, Rodri, sorry, Doku, Bernardo and Alvarez and then the guile of Bernardo and Foden. And then you've got that battering ram up front in Haaland. Like, it's a really, really good balanced squad. Really good balanced team. That's a team missing KDB, arguably the best player in the league. And still comfortably, uh, comfortably outplaying West Ham. And really good to see Oscar Bob, young Norwegian, get minutes off the bench. I'm excited to see more of him this season. I'm hoping... Hoping he can be a breakthrough star for City this year. I think he's super talented. One of a number of really exciting young uh, Norwegian attacking midfielders or wingers uh, to keep an eye on this year. If you're not familiar with Antonio Nusa, I think you will be soon. Plays for Club Bruges, right-footed left winger. I think him and Bob, as the the long-term wide players, for Norway is probably the most likely outcome. Those two with Haaland up front, that's very, very exciting. And it's not just them. Obviously, they've got Mark Nodegaard, who's one of the better players in the Premier League and can play a multitude of positions. I think likely he plays in the double pivot for them longer term because of some of the other attacking talent, including... Andreas Sheldrup, who I think is sensational. I'd love to see him play off Haaland with Bob on the right, Noosa on the left, and then Odegaard in centre midfield with maybe it's Sander Burge, but I don't feel like it is. I feel like you're probably looking more along the lines. Sivert. Mansfork, maybe. I think he might be the one that establishes that other midfield spot. He looks a good player. Uh, Just moved to Ajax there recently. Uh, I think that's probably the future. And why I'm talking so much about Norway, I have no real idea. I've just kind of gone off on a tangent here. Um, But yeah, I think think Mansfork and Odegaard with Bob, Schraldrup, Noosa, and then Haaland up front, that's going to be tough to stop. Now the the issue will be defensively. They're not they're not great defensively. Um, I do like Asia, obviously. Uh, I really like Ostergaard, and I think if you can get those two fit and in the team regularly together, that's pretty strong. Um, maybe Marcus Peterson plays right back and then left back. I'm not. 100% sure Frederick Bjorken maybe maybe there's a youngster coming through that I'm not familiar with but yeah exciting times for the Norwegians anyway uh, back to City I, it, I, I just don't see how they don't win the league this year I really don't every time it's put up to them they just have another gear to go into and then they have another gear after that 
and they're ruthless. They're absolutely ruthless. West Ham have made a really good start, though, and West Ham can be thrilled with the start that they have. Ten points, considering the games they've had, I think it's really good. You know, I know Chelsea have been awful, but you beat Chelsea quite comfortably. You went and beat Brighton. That's a really good result. Now, you were expected to beat Luton, so you're not getting points for that, or you you are. You're not getting any bonus points for that. But with Bournemouth, obviously, on the opening day, new manager at Bournemouth, new talent at Bournemouth, it it draws a good result in the the end. And look, overall, I think think West Ham have to be happy, considering what what a strange summer transfer window they had. Um, and the fact that they're still not completely whole yet, I think they can be really happy with where they are. Really nice to see Kudus come on. Um, hopefully he'll get his first start now in the next couple of games. And I think there's, there should be real excitement if he's playing maybe left wing with Paqueta as the 10, Bowen on the right, Alvarez and Ward-Prowse in midfield. The defence is pretty strong. Ariola's a good keeper. The question will be what happens when Antonio misses five games, which he inevitably will. But I assume that they're just looking to get to January and, and do more business then. Um, we move on. Tottenham 2, Sheffield United 1. This was almost the biggest upset of the season so far as Gustavo Hammer put... Sheffield United won up on 73 minutes. It looked like the Blades were going to hold on. Richarlison on 98 minutes with a really good header. And then Kulisevsky on 100 minutes after good work from Richarlison. Gives Spurs the win. Ange Postacoglu's start to the season. He must be he must be in dreamland because this, this is, couldn't have gone any better. 13 points playing arguably the best football in the league along with Brighton. Still working out the kinks in the team without question. Still waiting on other on players to come back from injuries, but getting an amazing tune out of this team. And what's really impressive is how he goes about it. Like there's no fluff and bluster. There's no there's no bigging himself up. It's very clear. Ange is about wanting fans to enjoy the football, and he was asked if it was you know. Spurs fans obviously were went mental when they scored the winner here and were absolutely delighted with this win, which of course you're going to be. You go into the 98th minute 1-0 down at home and you somehow turn it around and win the game. You're going to be thrilled. He was asked if, if the celebrations were over the top and he just said, no, let them go. Let them, let them enjoy it. Let them have this. And there's too many people... I think that sometimes are, are, are trying a little bit too hard to make it all a bit too serious, trying to take some of the enjoyment out of it. And we'll talk about that with United as well. Um, Ollie McBurney sent off in 104 minutes after. Just foolishness. Uh, protesting when he was already booked. Silly. Um, the Blades will be really disappointed because they've done so well. Now, look, they got completely outplayed in the game, is the truth of it. Now, their manager, Paul Heckenbottom, he came out after the game and he started whinging about time being added on. And he said, referees are ruining the game. He said, referees are ruining the game by pushing this 
uh, added time for time wasting thing. Well, first of all, this didn't come from the referees. This came from the Premier League and it came from UEFA, which came from FIFA originally. This is from the very top, the desire to stamp out time wasting. Every team knew this was the case before the season began. Every team knew that this was going to happen. It happened in each of the previous four weeks in the Premier League. So this wasn't just your game. In fact, there were, and it was another game which finished after your game because of time-wasting as well. Your team set out to time-waste. You were time-wasting in the first half in this game at nil-nil. You were time-wasting repeatedly. So the referee did nothing wrong here. The referee was right to add the time that he did. And here's the other thing. After Spurs scored their go-ahead goal, you still had five minutes to find an equaliser, and you didn't. So I don't want to hear the excuses. It's They're nonsense. You lost because of decisions your team and you specifically made. So I don't have any sympathy for them. I do have some sympathy for them in that they've played really well in a couple of games and only gotten one point. They were really good against City. They were very good against Everton, and they were really good here. And to only come out of those three with one point will sting a little bit. To have one point from five games is not ideal. It's not ideal. You're going to have to book your ideas up fairly quickly because otherwise it's going to be a hell of a long season. I have them going down. I've seen nothing yet to change my mind on that. There's a couple of good players in the team without question, but there needs to be drastic improvement in many areas. Uh, In particular, you know, keeping hold of the ball would help. You've got some lads that can actually play a bit of football. Try and keep hold of the ball just a little bit more. Don't just kick it into the corners and chase it. Um, Aston Villa 3, Crystal Palace 1. Palace thought they had this game won. Odson Edward scores on 47 minutes to put them one up. And they hold out and they hold out and they hold out. But unfortunately, part of the holding out came in the form of time-wasting. Now, Jean Duran equalised on 87 minutes, a lovely touch, swivel and rocket that gave absolutely no chance to Sam Johnston. Absolutely no chance, even though it was fairly central. No keeper saving that. But because of the time time wasting, we also get a bunch of added time and Villa get a penalty in the 98th minute. Douglas Louise steps up and scores. And then Leon Bailey wraps it up on 101 minutes after really good work by Moussa Diaby. Villa, overall, good value for their win, but it was tough for Palace. Tough for Palace because they played really well and they defended really well, especially without Mark Wehi in there. Dukure was outstanding. And I think... You, you, they took him off when the second goal, second Villa goal went in, but he'd run out of steam beyond then. Um, yeah, I, I just if if Palace could have just done a little bit less time wasting, I feel like they'd have held on and gotten at least a draw. But when you're 
playing away against a better team. It is just one of the avenues that you go down. Every team does it. You know, if Liverpool played away to Man City tomorrow, they'd waste a bit of time here and there as well. It's just what you do. Um, but unfortunately, you know, for these clubs, and, and again, no sympathy for any of them because the rules are very clear. Last game of Saturday then, of, of the 3 p.m. on Saturday then, Manchester United won Brighton 3. Um, I said to Guy on Friday, there's a way for United to win this game, but I thought Brighton would win by just outplaying them. And Brighton outplayed them quite comprehensively. Danny Welbeck put Brighton one up on 20 minutes, uh, a nice finish after, a good build-up. And then United had a spell where they played some good football, got into some good areas. Rashford missed a couple of chances. They had a goal chalked off. Hoysland thought he'd gotten his first for United, but the ball had gone out of play in the build-up. And United looked like they could come back into it. And they came out for the second half completely flat. And Brighton just tore into them. Just tore into them. And opened them up time and time and time again. Pascal Gross makes it 2-0 on 53. Ball fed to him, left-hand side of the penalty area. Just lets it run across his body. And if anyone can tell me what Lissandra Martinez is doing there... I'd love to know. Shocking defending as usual from the butcher. Um, and it's a great finish by, by Gross. Joe Pedro makes it three on 71. Again, build down the left, cut back into a central area. He arrives onto it and it's a, a lovely finish, but I think the goalkeeper should save it. Like, I, I don't think he puts it into the corner. I think it's not central, but it's, you know, half and half. I think the keeper should save that personally because it's telegraphed where it's going. I'd like to see the keeper save that. That's now seven goals conceded by Onana from 10 shots on target that he's faced. That seems less than ideal. A 30% save rate seems less than ideal. Hannibal Mejri did pull one back for Brighton, for United rather, on 73. It's a really good first touch, good second touch, and a really nice strike from outside the area that I think catches Jason Steele a little unsighted. There's been some some Arlars complaining about the celebration of Mejbri because the United were 3-1 down, or 3-0 down, and then he scores to make it 3-1. Let's let's be clear here. This is a young lad scoring his first goal for United, scoring it at Old Trafford. And the thing that I took from it wasn't that he was really celebrating. He was trying to get the crowd to back the team. That's what I took from it. He was trying to lift the crowd. And I think if United had more players like him, lads who actually care, I think they'd be far better off. I really do. He's made four appearances for United. And each time he's played, 
first of all, it's weird that he hasn't played an FA Cup, League Cup or Europa League game for the club. It's all four appearances have come in the Premier League. But every time he plays, he shows that he cares. And it, it can be something simple. Like, I remember last year. Um, no, not last year, sorry. The year before. The year before. Last year, he spent the season on loan with Birmingham. Liverpool embarrassed United 4-0 at Anfield the season before last. Uh, Diaz scored early, Salah scored, Mane scored, and Salah scored again. And United were abysmal, utterly abysmal. Pogba quit on the team, Bruno Fernandes didn't look arsed, Rashford didn't look like he could care. But the one thing that stood out for me from that game was Mejbri. He came on as a sub. And he ran around and he booted a bunch of people. And he actually gave a shit. Like, he actually cared. And I remember after the game, Gary Neville was lamenting the fact that Thiago had just been laughing at United as he sauntered around the pitch and dictated the game. And then also, you know, booted a bunch of United players. I remember thinking, because Meshby got some got some criticism after the game, because he came with some of the challenges were a little bit reckless or whatever. But I do remember just thinking, at least he cares. At least he at least he wants to try and get United back into this. He's not rolling over, he's not giving up. While all his teammates who were senior players had quit. Your Rashfords, your Fernandezes, your Pogbas, your Matiches, Phil, uh, Victor Lindelof, Phil Jones had gone off injured or whatever was wrong with him, Harry Maguire, they all gave up. And this kid who at the time, when, when was this game? April 2022. April 2022. He was not long turned 19. Not long turned 19. And this kid showed up the senior players by actually caring. I think if United had more like him, I think they'd be far better off. I really do. And if I was picking United's team for the next game, he'd be starting. Not Scott McCominay, he'd be starting. Because I know he's committed and know he cares. Um, Brighton were outstanding. And Brighton... Deserved to win and probably deserved to win by a couple more goals. United were appalling and United have major issues. Manchester United currently sit 13th in the league. Now, again, it is only five games, but this is the first time in Premier League history that United have lost three of their first five. I believe it's the first time since like the 60s or 70s that this has happened. Um, they don't look like a team. They don't look cohesive. There's no style of play. This manager has now been in place 15 months or so. And there's no patterns of play. There's no defensive structure other than a deep block. They're far too individualistic. They don't seem to have any real discernible identity as a team. And the whole thing with him was he was coming to bring this identity because United hadn't had one since Ferguson was there. And he hasn't done that. 
What he's done is he's shown you can't really trust managers that come out of Ajax because if we think back, like he, yeah, he won back to back Eri Divisi titles. Great. Frank de Boer won four. Frank de Boer won four league titles in three and a half years. And it's been a, cat, a catastrophic failure everywhere he's been since. Everywhere. Like, Frank de Boer was better at Ajax as a manager than Eric Ten Hag. And when we look at what Frank de Boer has done since, disaster with Inter, sacked after 14 games. Disaster with Crystal Palace, sacked after five games. Very poor overall with with, um, Atlanta United. Poor with the Netherlands. And now he's off stealing money from Al Jazeera in the UAE. And it's not going particularly well. Frank de Boer just isn't a good manager, but he won four league titles. Now, I know he'll point at the fact that he won cups with Atlanta United. He inherited the best team in the MLS. Um, so I'm not, I'm not having any of that. He's just not a good manager. It's as simple as that. There's a reason he gets sacked everywhere. Sacked by Inter, sacked by Palace, sacked by Atlanta, and sacked by the Netherlands. And I I think, genuinely, that Ten Hag is a poor manager. Um, just for those that want to be clear on Atlanta, they won the MLS Cup the year before De Boer took over, so him winning a couple of cups doesn't really impress me because they had the best team in MLS. Um, I, I don't think Ten Hag is a particularly good manager because what's he actually done at United to suggest that he's a good manager? Yeah, he won a cup. Great. Do we do we want to take a look at who they beat in that Cup run? Let's let's do that. Let's take a look at who they beat in in actually in all of their cup runs uh last year, shall we? FA Cup, so they get to the final. Uh they beat a really bad Everton team, a lower league Reading, a really bad West Ham, a mid table Fulham, all of whom they get to play at home, by the way. And then they looked their way past Brighton on penalties in the semi final before losing to City in the final. In the League Cup, they play a really bad Villa, the Gerard Villa. Now, Emery was in charge, but had only been there a week or so. So it was still the Gerard Villa. And they lost to them in the, the league a couple of days beforehand. They played lower league Burnley, lower league Charlton, again, all at home. Then they get a poor Forest, beat them over two legs, and they beat Newcastle, minus their starting goalkeeper. And their backup goalkeeper. So, I mean, what am I to be impressed by here? In the Europa League, they lost to Real Sociedad, and then they beat Sheriff Tiraspol, Ammonia twice, Sheriff again, and scraped by Sociedad. Finished second in a really, really poor group. In the knockout phase, they did beat Barcelona, but Barcelona were average. 
average. I know they won La Liga. La Liga was crap last year. They beat Real Betis, fairly average team, and then they lost to Sevilla in the quarterfinals. Like, what am I to be impressed by here? In the league, it's not like they were outstanding. They played volleyball and they rolled their luck and they rolled a strong home record. But some of these results, 4-0 away to Brentford, 6-3 away to City, 3-1 away to a bad Villa team, 7-0 away to Liverpool. Like, what am I impressed by here? What am I supposed to look at and say, that's Eric Ten Hag's United? And he spent a fortune. And if we look at these signings, it's very hard to point to many of them as a success. Malashia got on the team for a spell, didn't impress, dropped, don't see a whole lot of them since. Christian Eriksen's been fine, signed on a free, but fine and nothing more. Uh, I haven't been impressed by Martinez at all. I know some people have been because he's aggressive and he's a decent passer of the ball. But the guy can't defend to save his life. He's a really poor defender. Uh, they signed Tom Huddleston, but that was for quota purposes more than anything. Casemiro was really good last year. He's been awful this season. Can't run. Legs are gone. We were right when we said it at the time. And I got stick for it. And, you know, my good friend Graham Souness got stick for it. The guy can't run anymore. They got the last little bit that was left in them last season. And this season is painful to watch. Anthony has been awful. Like, what's impressive there? Dubravka, Butland, Veghorst and Sabitzer all in on loan. None of whom impressed. This season, Mount, I know it's early, but he's looked awful. Johnny Evans, Onana doesn't look particularly clever. Uh, Beyinder hasn't played yet. And Hoysland, I, I, I think, will come good. But it's a massive risk for a player with no real pedigree. And then the loans of Regulon and Amrabat. Like, they've spent a fortune. Way way over $400 million. You're talking $430 million or so. Um, maybe even a little bit more when you factor in the loan fees. And they're 13th in the league. They, they haven't improved. Like, last season, obviously, they finished third, which is a, a marked improvement on the previous season. But the previous season went about as badly as it possibly could have gone. They started really poorly. Oli ends up getting sacked. They bring in Ranić, and it's a mess. And the biggest reason it's a mess is because of Cristiano. But let's not forget, they went into the 2021-22 season talking about challenging for the title. That's where they believed they were because they finished second the year before. They'd added Sancho, they'd added Varane. And then they added Cristiano, which is what, what actually ruined it. That's the rotten apple in the barrel. Now, Ten Hag did well last season to get rid of him. And that was a big factor in them making top four. It's not a surprise. It's not a coincidence that they improved massively without him. But they're no better now than they were under Oli. The only difference is he, he won a League Cup when he had the most favourable draw anyone's ever had in any competition. 
He couldn't have picked it better yourself. Ollie finished second. I mean, Jose finished second. He also won two cups in his first year. And look what happened. And the biggest thing for me is there's just no style of play. They just they don't look like they, they have much of a clue what they're meant to be doing other than sitting in and trying to counterattack. So you're telling me you spent all that money to just be a, a counterattacking team? Because you could have done that for half the budget. And he came out after the game and he said, people talk with the money we spend. Everybody spends money. Brighton spends money. Okay. Right. Let's have a look at that, shall we? Um, Brighton has spent money. All right. Let, let, let's, let's actually dig into that for a, a quick second and just show how flawed that argument is. So Brighton's goalkeeper at the weekend was Jason Steele. Uh, Jason Steele was a free transfer. Um, at right back, they had Joel Veltman. Joel Veltman cost £900,000 when they signed him from Ajax. Their centre-backs were Jean-Paul Van Heck and Lewis Dunk. Uh, Van Heck cost £1.5 and Dunk is from the academy. So we're at £2.4 million then. Uh, Tariq Lamptey played right, played left-back. Out of position, by the way, he cost £1.2 So we're through the goalkeeper and the defence, and we're up to £3.6 million. Um, in midfield, they started with... Modahood and Pascal Gross. Modahood arrived on a free transfer and Pascal Gross cost three million pounds. So that's six point six million uh, that we're up to now. Uh on the wings they started with a Dingra and Matoma. So a Dingra, I think he cost eight million. Where is Simon Adingra? Eight million it was. So we're at 14.6 million. And Matoma cost three million. So that's 17.6 million. Um, Adam Lalana played as a 10. He was a free. And Danny Welbeck played up front. He was a free. So on the bench then, we had James Milner. What do you know? He was a free. Uh, you had Billy Gilmore. He cost $8.4 million. So that gets us to $26 million. You had Evan Ferguson. Cost 500000 uh, Ansu Fati, in on loan. No loan fee. And you had Joe Pedro. He came off the bench and Joe Pedro cost $34 million. So that gets us to 60.5. Unused subs in the game. Uh, we had Bart for Bruggen. Uh, he cost 16. That gets us to 76.5. Um Adam Webster, he cost 20, so that's 96.5. 
Uh, and then we've got Beliba and Igor Julio. Igor Julio cost 15, so that gets us 111.5. And then uh, Beliba cost 23.5. So that gets us to 135 million pounds. That is the cost of the Brighton squad that took on uh, this Manchester United team. Um, for the entire squad, £135 million. Uh, Manchester United, on the other hand, paid more than that just for Lissandro Martinez and Casemiro. They paid £114 million. Oh, no, sorry. For Onana... Onana, Martinez, and Casemiro, the signings by this manager. You know, we don't have to include Heuschland. We don't have to include Anthony. We don't have to include many of the other players. Brighton has spent pittance in comparison to Manchester United. And if we look at players that weren't in the squad, because that will be his argument next, Estupinen wasn't in the squad. He cost about £18 That's So that's a big one. Uh, Jakob Motor cost 11 million. So there's 29 million. Um, James Milner came in on a free. I think I think I mentioned him. Um, a Stupinen for 18, Motor for 11, 29, and Cecil cost 11. So there's 40. And Buenonote cost 6, 46 million plus the the £5,000 they paid for Solly March in 2011. So when we add up the entire Brighton squad, and we can include the players that are out on loan, if you want. We can include Kel Sherpin, Dennis Undav, Yasin Iyeri, Kasper Kozlowski, and Abdullah Sima. We can include them. But they still come to less than Ten Hag spent just this past summer. So his argument about money doesn't make doesn't doesn't hold any water. Let's look at the Brighton team. Let's look at a combined team between these two. Onana or Steele? I'm no fan of Onana, but he's a better goalkeeper than Jason Steele. Diogo Delow is a better right-back than Joel Veltman, and Regulon's a better left-back than Tariq Lamptey. Lindelof is better than Van Heck. Now, Dunk is better than Martinez. But in midfield, you're absolutely taking Casemiro over Mo de Hoot. You're taking Eriksen over Gross. You're taking Bruno over Lallana. You're taking... Hoysland over Welbeck. You'd probably, you'd take Rashford over Matoma as much as I like Matoma. So other than Simon Adingra over Scott McTominay and Lewis Dunk over Lissandra Martinez, I mean, United have the better team. And yet they got comprehensively outplayed on their home patch by this Brighton team. And the Zerbi took over after Ten Hag inherited a much worse squad than Ten Hag, 
has spent far less money than Ten Hag. Still has a worse squad than Ten Hag. Had both of his best players sold in the summer, unlike Ten Hag. And yet his team look like a fluid, cohesive team. And United look like a gang of lads that met each other before the game. I think the pressure is going to grow. I'm already seeing United fans becoming more and more vocal. Now, they're fortunate enough in that the schedule favours them a little bit over the next while, league-wise anyway. They get Bayern next in Champions League. I expect them to lose. Then they go to Burnley. They should win that. Then they play Palace at home in the EFL Cup and then at home in the league. Then they play Galatasaray at home. Then they play Brentford at home. Then they go to Sheffield United and then they go to Copenhagen. And then they face City. But all of those games pre-City, post-Bayern pre-City, they should win. That's seven games. Burnley away, Palace Home Cup, Palace Home League, Galatasaray home, Brentford home, Sheffield United away, Copenhagen at home. United should win all seven of them. And if they don't, I think big, big questions are going to need to be asked. I I just can't get over Ten Hag's arrogance, really, in terms of the way he just tried to bat away the questions. Like, here's a better way to look at the, the cost of these teams. On United's bench... They had Martial, Juan Bissaka, and Harry Maguire. The three of them alone cost about the same as the entire Brighton squad. The entire Brighton squad, not just the match day squad, the entire squad. So I don't want to hear about. Not having money. United have always spent money. They just spend it badly. And this manager's no exception. And I think he's going to come under severe pressure. I really do. Because there's been no improvement. There's no identity. The football is awful to watch. And they have been awful this season. And I saw a United fan try and say, we've just been unlucky. No, you haven't. No, you haven't at all. Quite the opposite, in fact. Because you deserve to lose to Wolves, but you got really lucky that they missed their chances and that the referee made an awful decision. So you got really lucky in that game. Then, in your next match, you lost Spurs. Then you faced Forrest and were 2-0 down within, what, six minutes? Four minutes. Should have lost that game. Forrest bottled that. Now, you were a little bit unlucky away to Arsenal. Without question, the Rice goal should have been disallowed. There's no doubt the Rice goal should have been disallowed. But there was no luck involved in the Brighton game. You just got outplayed. So, yes, you should have got a point away to Arsenal. But you also should have lost at home to Wolves and lost at home to Forrest. Or at the very most, taken a point from each. Which means that if luck had balanced itself properly, you'd actually have one point, maybe three, 
Instead, you've got six. You're lucky to have six. You're very, very lucky to have six. You're not a good team. You're miles away from being a good team. Miles and miles away. You're already seven points off top four. And we're five games in. You're six points behind Brighton. We'll move on. The late kickoff on Saturday saw Newcastle beat Brentford 1-0. Newcastle were... Brentford started the better team. Newcastle came into it. And then over the balance of the game, Newcastle were probably slightly the better team. But a draw would have been a fair result here. Newcastle get the win through a Callum Wilson penalty on 64. I don't think it's a penalty. Uh, There is contact between Flecken and Gordon. But I don't think these type of penalties should be given. As Gordon gets to that ball, and, and just before he makes contact, he kicks the ball out of play. Like, he kicks the ball out of play. They, these are the type of penalties that really bother me. The ball is going out of play. There is absolutely no, no way Anthony Gordon is keeping that ball in play. The ball may already have been out of play before the contact was made. I haven't seen the right angle for it. But that, to me, is not a penalty. Because, yes, they've, they've had a collision, but nothing can happen for Gordon... If they don't, if Flecken doesn't touch him, the ball just runs out of play. Gordon has bought that penalty. And he, of course, because he's a white English lad, he gets called clever. But he's not clever. He's a cheat. He's one of the biggest cheats in the league. Um, Newcastle had another penalty awarded and then taken away. And Bomo's fouled at the back post and he heads it onto his own hand. But he was being fouled. And it should have been a free out. But the referee gave a penalty and then thankfully overturned it. Uh, into Sunday then, and we had two games. Both of them were awful. Uh, Bournemouth nil, Chelsea nil. Just a nothing game, really. Chelsea had the better of the game. They had the better chances. They hit the crossbar. They hit the post. But they never, they never looked like they had. They never looked like they were going to overwhelm Bournemouth. Let's put it that way. They never looked like they were many classes of both Bournemouth. And they spent a billion quid on this squad now. And they're drawing nil-nil away to Bournemouth. And Conor Gallagher, who they tried desperately to sell all summer, was captain. Conor Gallagher was captain of Chelsea for a Premier League game. And to be fair, has been one of their better players this season. But they tried desperately to sell him all summer. Very, very weird. Um... I think Bournemouth will be happy with the point and maybe could have had all three. Solanke missed a decent chance late on. But they're 15th, Chelsea are 14th. They have three points, Chelsea have five. There's just no way Chelsea are happy with how things are going. Their only win so far this season was against Luton. I reckon I could put together an 11 out of people listening to this podcast and give Luton a decent game at this point. Um, Drew at Liverpool comfortably beaten by West Ham beaten at home by Forrest and now drawing with Bournemouth and, and it gets tougher for them like they've got Villa next then Brighton in the League Cup then Fulham and then Burnley but both of those games are away 
And then it gets really hard. Arsenal home, Brentford home, Spurs away, City home, Newcastle away, Brighton home, United away. And then they go to Everton on the 9th of December. And Everton could be desperate by then. That run, starting with Arsenal, ending with United, even though United are crap, United are at home will be tough for them. That's a seven-game run that could dis- decide their season. It could also decide the fate of, of Pochettino. Because not that, it, not that he's done anything wrong, and not that any of this is his fault, but their owner has already shown he doesn't have any patience. And we've seen him sack Tuchel, and we've seen him sack Graham Potter. He's only been in the job been in the job owning the club for over a year. Spent all that money to back Tuchel, sacked him. Spent all that money to back Potter, sacked him. Would it surprise anyone having spent all the money to back Pochettino if he sacked him? Chelsea look a million miles away from even being competitive with the top teams. They really do. And frankly, to have spent all that money and end up with a bench of Cole Palmer, Ben Chilwell, Ian Matson, Dorde Petrovic, David Washington, Alfie Gilchrist, Lucas Bergstrom, Alex Matos, and Ronnie Stutter. Like, what on earth is going on at Chelsea? What is going on at Chelsea that that's the strongest bench that they can put out? I know they've got injuries, but that's outrageously bad. Cole Palmer is your game changer. Ian Matson's a left back that you're using as a winger. Ben Chilwell is a left back. You brought on two left backs to try and win the game. Like Bournemouth brought on better players in Sinistera and David Brooks. Bournemouth will be happy with the result. They'll be happy with the point. Now they're going to need to win a game soon. Um, but I, I'm 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 confident that they'll they'll find results. They've got a tough one coming up uh, in Brighton away. Then they get Arsenal home. I think they'll give Arsenal a tough time. Then they get Everton away, Wolves home, Burnley home. I think they'll pick up points in those games. I could see six, maybe even seven points from those three. Last game then. Who actually, who's under more pressure right now, Ten Hag or Pochettino? Because they've both obviously been headhunted, shall we say. Pochettino wasn't first choice, regardless of what they say. Nagelsmann was first choice and turned the job down. But Pochettino was who they went for then. They turned down the opportunity to get Luis Enrique. Maybe he turned them down. It's a little bit unclear, but either way, that's who they ended up with. They've backed him to the hill, but how much say did he actually have in these signings? Like, how much input has, has, has Maurizio Pochettino actually had in the summer business? Because I don't know that Pochettino would have been all that happy just signing a bunch of kids. Like, if we take a look at what they did in the summer, and obviously we've been over it, and everybody knows uh, who they signed and, and what they did, but if we look at the players they brought in, like it's a lot of kids. Caicedo, 21. Lavia, 19. And Kunku, 25. That deal was done from the, 
December. Cole Palmer, 21. De Sassi, 25. A reaction to Fafana getting hurt. Nicholas Jackson, 22. Ogachuku, 19. David Washington, 18. Angelo, 18. Petrovic, 23. Moreira, 18. Like, the only... The only summer signing they made over the age of 23 is Robert Sanchez, who's, what's he got, 100 games, 120 games under his belt? Robert Sanchez, 90 for Bright and a couple of loans. 52 games on loan in lower divisions. 90 senior games for Brighton, 87 Premier League games. That's the most experienced player you're adding to the group. Like, that's that's a questionable approach. Obviously, for the long term, you, you hope that it's going to work out if you're a Chelsea fan. But I said going into the summer, you need a goalkeeper, you need a ball winner, you need someone that will score your goals. They didn't get a goalkeeper. Sanchez, not for me. Didn't get someone who will score them goals. A Caicedo is a ball winner, yeah. Great, but is him and is him and Enzo really the right pairing? I, the more I think about it, the more doubts I have. Um, I think in a normal circumstance, Pochettino wouldn't be under much pressure, but I I do just wonder with this lunatic in charge and the decisions he's made regarding Tuchel, regarding um, Graham Potter. It wouldn't surprise me, especially with the run they have come coming up if, if Pochettino was gone by the start of December. Really wouldn't surprise me. Ten Hag should be under more pressure, but he has won some silverware, which does tend to give you a little bit of the old credit in the bank. But United are awful. like, And there's no excuse, because that's his team now. Year two, he's been able to direct the transfers. He's been the driving force in most of the moves they've made. He signed players that played from before, which, I mean, I just, I always find that a little bit weird. You know, you, you just sign a bunch of players that played for you before uh, and don't try and broaden your horizons. Last season, obviously, Martinez and Anthony had played from uh, in the past. He also had the the Ajax link with Ericsson, so he knew about Ericsson's personality and different traits. Um, and then obviously this summer, Onana played for him in the past. Amrabat played for him in the past. Like it, it's just a bit much. It is a bit much to four players. that Not for me, not for me. Um, I, I think it should be him, but it could it could well be a case that it's it's Pochettino because United's owners are a little bit absentee and Chelsea's owners are a little bit too much hands on. Last game then, uh, Arsenal won Everton nil at Goodison. Um, Leandro Trossard with the only goal of the game. I, I'm not at all impressed with Arsenal this season. I just I. They look flat. They've had the easiest start of any team in the league. 
Now, I've seen Arsenal fans try and push the idea of we're dominating games, look at our field tilt numbers. And that's all well and good. That's basically just territorial possession. You've played five teams that don't want the ball. Like, let's be really honest here. Forest don't want the ball. Palace don't want the ball. Fulham don't want the ball. United don't want the ball. And Everton don't want the ball. They're teams that average 40% possession. United may be a little bit higher, but the rest of them probably, I would guess, less than 40% possession. They're all counterattacking teams. They're all teams that, especially when they play top clubs, don't want the ball. You scrape past Forest. Very, very lucky against Palace. Very fortunate against Fulham. Very fortunate against United. Now, you weren't fortunate in this game. You deserved to win the game, but they're awful. And you only managed one goal? And they'll whinge about having a second goal, or for what would have been an opening goal disallowed, but it was offside. It was simple as that. It was offside. Nothing can be done about it. I wouldn't be at all impressed by Arsenal. And I keep seeing people tell, tell me that Declan Rice is proving me wrong. On what? Seven out of ten performances against bottom half teams? That's what you paid $105 million for? He's playing as a defensive midfielder. The key word in that is defensive. He had two big defensive moments in the game yesterday. And he got rinsed on both of them. The most notable of which was Abdoulaye Dukure lifting the ball over his head and then running away from him. It's all well and good, Rice having 86% pass completion on 90 passes a game while his team are dominating the ball. But if he's not doing the defensive side of things, when they come against good teams and they are going to start coming up against good teams, he is going to have problems. And they're going to have problems. I'm not impressed. They've spent a fortune. They've gotten worse. And it's notable that Kai Havertz has already been dropped. It was also notable that Aaron Aaron Ramsdale was dropped. And they can frame it as, oh, he was getting rested. After an international break? Nonsense. He was dropped. He was dropped for David Rea. Simple as that. They play that team against anybody good, they'll get carved apart. Everton are poor. Everton look relegation bound. Uh, there's just there's no hope in that team. They've got one point from five games. They would be bottom, if not for Burnley and Luton, who've played less games than them. And Burnley played tonight. Burnley have two games in hand. And if they were, let's say, to win tonight, they would go ahead of them. And if Luton and Burnley drew the other game, which is their other game in hand, um, Everton would sit just above Luton on goal difference, not not with a point to spare. So I, I despair at Everton. I really do. I really do. I'm going to go to break. And when we come back, we're just going to run through the gossip. And uh, that will be us for today. I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, it is time to do the gossip 
Jaden Sancho is open to leaving Manchester United in January if the English winger remains marooned at the club until the new year. Eric Ten Hag will not back down over his demand for an apology in private and public for Sancho saying the United manager has not told the truth. Why should Sancho apologise? Ten Hag tried to make him a scapegoat, and it's not the first time he's done it. Last season, he brought up something in public that he wasn't cleared to speak about. Sancho should not apologise. West Ham were unable to agree a deal for Hugo Ekatiki, but the French striker is set to quit PSG in January. I really want Brentford to sign him. I really want Brentford to sign him. I think he'd be ideal there. Um, Bayern Munich could revisit a deal for Trevor Chalaba in January window. I don't know why they didn't just go for him in, in, the su- in, in the summer. He can play right back, centre back and holding midfield. He fixes all your problems. Chelsea's co-sporting directors, Paul Winstanley and Lawrence Stewart, have defended the money spent by the club and the amount of transfer activity the Blues have conducted this window. Well, of course they have, because to do otherwise would be to admit that they have done a dreadful job. Oh, they told Chelsea's official website. Not not a real outlet. Chelsea's official website. It's a bit of propaganda. Getting the excuses out. Utter, utter nonsense. There is no defending what you've done this summer. None. You've absolutely made a hames of things. You've had all the money in the world. You don't have a goal scorer. You don't have a goalkeeper. You don't have a real centre-back pairing. Don't know if I trust any of your wingers. <laughs> Shambles. Uh, Boca Juniors are preparing to offer a new contract to Valentin Barco to make him one of the highest paid players at the club. City came with everything in a bid to sign Lamine Yamal this summer before the 16-year-old made his breakthrough with Barcelona and Spain this season. Uh, Nice's defender, Jean-Claire Tadibo, said he didn't want to join Manchester United in the summer because he didn't want to make a mistake. That's very interesting. Everton's director of football, Kevin Telwell, submitted three different player recruitment plans to the new owner, new owners, but the response was so cold that it sparked concern among senior figures about their interest in team investment. What? Is this regarding? It is. This is the new owners. Well, that's very, very interesting. It is said that 777 are planning to invest in the construction of the new stadium, but not in the playing squad. That one well-placed source, now it's football insider, so there's no source, uh, could lead to disaster. It would, would lead to disaster. It would lead to relegation. They'll have to spend in January. Simple as that. Uh, Liverpool are not close to any deal for Piero Hincapier. Uh, that's according to Jack Talbot, who is, as we know, an enormous spoofer. Um, Arsenal are confident of agreeing a new contract with Martin Odegaard uh, they also want to extend Ben White's deal I'm not sure why he's got three years left leave him a year after completing a move from Borussia Dortmund to Anderlecht Torgan Hazard has asked Eden Hazard 
to follow him in making a return to their native Belgium. I think he should do that. I think he might as well keep playing. He might be happy playing close to home. Uh, Poland striker Robert Lewandowski has played down the possibility of a move to the Saudi Pro League or MLS, saying he is happy at Barcelona. And UEFA is considering changes to the Women's Champions League, including the expansion of the tournament. Uh, Barcelona are interested in a move for Jaden Sancho. Barcelona have no money. Manchester United will, sorry, Manchester City will delay holding talks with KDB, whose deal runs until 2025 until he returns from a lengthy hamstring injury. Okay. Uh, Thomas Partey might be sold in January. He won't be. Uh, Sheffield United are targeting a move for former manager Chris Wilder as a replacement for Paul Heckenbottom. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Since leaving Sheffield United, he's done a bad job at Middlesbrough and a bad job at Watford. I'm not really sure Chris Wilder's the guy to go back to. And I like Chris Wilder. I think he did a great job there the first time. I just... I I think you need to look elsewhere and maybe broaden the pool a little bit. Uh, Heckenbottom is currently the favourite to be the first manager sacked, followed by Sean Dyche, then Rob Edwards, then it's Ten Hag, then there's a cluster of Gary O'Neill, Marco Silva and Steve Cooper. I think Marco Silva's bulletproof this year. I don't think Steve Cooper will come under much threat, and I really don't think Gary O'Neill will either, unless things go disastrously badly. Uh, then it's company and how. I would say how should be shorter odds, but I wouldn't say he'll get sacked. Uh, then Iraola and Pochettino. Then Moyes, Postacoglu and Klopp. Not sure how Klopp can have shorter odds than Emery, Frank, Deserby, Arteta. Guardiola obviously is, has the longest odds, but still. Um, yeah, I think... I think Heckenbottom and Dyche are probably the two that are most likely to go. But, I, you know, Ten Hag and Poch, you never know. You never know. Um, Arsenal are close to agreeing a new deal with Martin Odegaard. They're not, but, it, you know, it's Football Insider. Uh, Cristiano is suing Juventus for $17 million in wages that were left pending during the pandemic. Everton are still keen to sign Wilfred Nanto. Leeds will not sell him. Simple as that. Bayern Munich and Real Madrid will battle it out to hire Xabi Alonso next summer. Will they? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Luka Modric's first club, Dinamo Zagreb, will attempt to re-sign the Croatian midfielder. It's 19. It's 19.com. It's Tom Gott. It's it's garbage. Um, Real Madrid... Manager Carlo Ancelotti says the Spanish club are planning to renew Modric's contract. Paul Pogba could have his Juventus contract cancelled, depending on the result of an investigation into a failed doping test. Conor Gallagher is currently happy at Chelsea, though Tottenham are planning to come back, and I don't think they are. He doesn't suit how Spurs play, so I I don't think they are at all. Uh, Everton's takeover by 777 partners could come under threat after an investigation was launched following the following concerns raised about their firm, about their investment in British basketball. Okay. Uh, Barcelona have not yet discussed a contract extension with Frankie de Jong. 
don't think they're only under any threat of losing him because he hasn't really been all that good for most of his time there. But people seem to think he's great, so away with them. Uh, Athletic Bilbao are confident Nico Williams will sign a new deal. I think he will, but I think he'll sign it with a buyout. And I think he'll leave next summer for that buyout. Um, he's really good, but I think he will be loyal to the club and make sure they get a fee for him. Uh, last day of gossip here now. Scott McTominay has emerged as a potential target for Bayern Munich. That's just a rehash of a bad rumour that was out in the summer. Uh, it would take a ridiculous offer for Chelsea to consider selling Reese James. Considering he's their new captain and has signed a new contract recently, I think it's probably unsellable. And with his injuries, he's definitely unsellable. Barcelona are keen to sign Alexander Isak. More nonsense. Aston Villa have joined Liverpool and Barcelona in looking at Nico Williams. That'll be fun. Him at Villa be fun. I, I'd love him at Liverpool, though. Uh, Brighton will make a new move for Valentin Barco before the January transfer window. West Ham and Crystal Palace could reignite their interest in Hugo Akatiki. Manchester United, Arsenal and Liverpool are monitoring Red Bull Salzburg's 19-year-old attacking midfielder Oscar Gloch, who is now Glosh, Gloch, I don't know, who is now a regular for Israel. Uh, Conor Gallagher could change his stance on the club and decide to quit Chelsea if he loses his place. Well, that's just nonsense. Um, Sunderland's 17-year-old English winger Tom Watson is back on the radar of Nottingham Forest. Roma are considering whether to proceed with a move to sign Alvaro Morata. Italy striker Chiro Immobile is expected to stay with Lazio despite receiving offers from multiple teams in Saudi Arabia. Former Germany coach Joachim Lowe is among the leading candidates to replace fellow German Stefan Kuntz as Turkey coach. I didn't realise Stefan Kuntz was the Turkey coach, if I'm honest. Um, I did not know that. He's been there two years as well. And he was fired after the... He was fired yesterday after the results against Armenia and Japan. In fairness, Japan also beat Germany. So Japan based, basically responsible for getting Hansi Flick and Stefan Kuhn's fired. It's a fair effort. Fair effort. Uh, Turkey's Football Federation has opened talks with Vincenzo Montella, uh, who ended a two-year spell in charge of Adana Demospor in June about replacing... Um, uh, is Montello a good ma- Montello a good manager? I don't think he is. I don't think he is. He did well with Fiorentina. He was a disaster with Sampdoria. He was poor with Milan. He was a disaster with Sevilla. He did okay with Adana Demospor, but I mean, where did they finish? They finished fourth last year. The year before they finished ninth. So one decent season, one bad season. They're in the Conference League. They're now managed by Patrick Clivert, which is very strange indeed. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's good, bad or indifferent. Um, But they've got a nice stadium. I do know that. Um, I, if of the two, Joachim Lowe was the one to go for. The guy who won a World Cup. He's a better international manager. He's proven international manager. 
I should say. And that's it. That's all the gossip for today. I'll see you all on Wednesday. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Network.